0: Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best panels pertaining to RPG design and publishing. This has been made possible by Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Now to the show! Episode 42, Adventure Design as Technology. Recorded at Metatopia 2014. Presented by... Rob Donahue, and Cam Banks.
1: This is Adventure Design as Tech Game Technology. Uh, I'm Rob Donahue of Evil Hat and some other stuff.
2: And I'm Cam Banks of Atlas Games and some other stuff. Uh, And the intermittent sound
1: you are hearing in the distance, we apologize for. We don't know what it is. Uh, I think there's a power tool fight happening on the second floor. Or it's Uh, Chthonians. Either way, I think the LARPers have gotten a little bit out of control. (laughs) So, uh, we are talking about Adventure Design as Technology. And that is a really pretentious sounding title. Um, But there's a reason we use it. Uh, Technology... Uh, uh, This is the point where I bust out the PowerPoint. Like, Technology is defined as the practical application of scientific knowledge. Well, that's not really true for this because we're not hugely scientific. But there is a lot of value in looking at the elements of game design as technology. Uh, We develop technologies for better rules. We develop technologies for better presenting of uh, of setting. And there are technologies for better presenting of...
2: It may help to also uh, make it clear that technology does not necessarily always mean game mechanics uh, per se. Um, we don't want to sort of imply that adventure design needs to have crunchy stuff to make it be no. potent. Uh, but this, the, the process and the procedures and other kinds of tricks we use to make adventures more accessible and more interesting uh, uh, tech is stuff I like to steal from other games. Exactly. Uh, in general. And also, I think what we've also seen more often is now. Um, the adventure design, the adventure technology is uh, best practices from GMs who do it well, that we are now codifying into games, uh, much as Apocalypse World did yep. for things and other games continue to do, where someone who has had lots of experience running games has said, you know what, no, none of the games I've ever read have said this outright, and let's see if we can start saying it that anyway. so. so, to talk a little bit uh, about adventure design and adventure
1: technology, uh, when we think about adventures, uh, the model that has informed us most clearly and most historically is the map with a key. If we're going to talk about the very first adventure design technology, that's what it is, and that's what we think of when we're thinking about a lot of adventures. Here's a map. It's got a. It's got a dungeon. It's got some numbers on it. That number corresponds <coughs> with this encounter, and that is seems kind of crude in its own right, but it's important to look at because the very first piece of adventure design technology really was the dungeon. Uh, we take it as a given at the moment, but the dungeon has a lot of things going for it that are the reasons it is such a consistently usable model. A dungeon provides an isolated environment with constrained choices, um, with limited impact on the rest of the setting, which means you can drop it in to almost anything, and where there is a natural sense of progression. Um, Those are all really powerful things, and that means that if I've got this brilliant dungeon, it's not hard for me to port to something else, it's not hard for me to run, because whatever goes on in the dungeon, however wild and crazy and intricate my world is, the dungeon's a constrained space, so I can only get messed up so much. All the choices that happen in the dungeon are, frankly, often false. It's like Vegas,
2: really, isn't it? Exactly.
1: Well, ultimately, you're trying to get to the end. Maybe the choices mean you skip a room or two. Maybe you miss a secret door. But by and large, you're just going to progress through it, but it's going to feel like you're making choices. It's going to feel like you're moving along. And so it's worth looking at the dungeon through this lens to realize that we're not saying the dungeon is just an idea we're discarding and setting aside in favor of these new and shiny ways of doing things, but rather look at why the dungeon has worked so well for so long.
2: Dungeons also have a built-in fail state that people can accept. Uh, I went into a room and there's a dragon like I eat. That is harder sometimes to take out of the dungeon because you don't have that same pre-assumed result of being involved in this process. And in fact, uh, Cam
1: set something up there that's uh, really, really important. The dungeon is a third party. Um, If you are playing a game, you've got you and you've got the GM, if the dungeon kills you, It does not feel like the GM killed you. And that's total sleight of hand. That's nonsense. But the fact that it feels different is actually really important. And that's where a lot of the adventure construction comes up. And this is also true in world building and setting and building and whatnot. Is that if you can create something that feels like it's something separate from either the player or the GM, then... You get a lot more interesting emotional play because you're connecting with the thing, and you are both interacting with that, as opposed to the GM trying to kick your butt.
3: Question: you say that, <clears throat> In a dungeon, it feels like uh, not GM tries to kill you, but the like, dungeon itself tries to
2: kill
3: you. Yep. Uh, can you uh, give an opposite example? Like how do feel just uh, in the game still feels like GM killing you?
2: Oh, I mean, any GM's favorite NPC
3: having yeah. a fight outside the castle with uh, you. So basically, it's
1: saying that uh, because Dungeon is not an NPC. Right. So let's just say we're playing a game that's got uh, a more abrupt scene framing sort of thing. So I'm just saying, all right, you're in the King's Palace and you're, you're all in the boardroom with, the, with these people in it, and uh, this guy over here hates you. And he's just going to pick a fight with you. That feels like me as a GM abusing my authority and, and just applying that as a brute force. Whereas if the castle exists in the setting and the players choose to go and interact with it, they've got some agency in that. How much of that is real and how much is illusionary depends on the table. But it feels like they've chosen to interact with the thing, as opposed to me as the GM just bringing down the hammer.
2: If there's a door in a room and it says uh, if there's a, the, the sign the door says, "Beyond here is you know five thousand orcs." The players can say, well, we could just not go in there and the GM can go, yeah, I guess you could not go in there. But if they choose to go in, the players feel they've made a decision to do something with some amount of warning or expectation that, oh, the GM's like, it's not my fault you were in that room with 5,000 orcs, I guess you die now. Yep. <laughs> That's less likely to be the, the GM is being addicted to you as it is the dungeon is doing it. Do you make a
4: distinction between dungeons that the himself is written and was that uh, written by someone else for example the difference between your homebrew dungeon
1: and Tomb of <coughs> uh, that ends up being an experiential difference I mean in theory it's <coughs> it's nice if a third party writes it because then the GM can totally blame them but there, again that's the, this this is we're talking about degrees of sleight of hand to some yeah, extent here. because
2: the, the the game master has a number of hats so in this case yeah. making the dungeon is the game master being a designer and you can say, "Yeah, that designer me was a jerk," but me, me, who's interacting with the game now, I, it's not my fault. The dungeon is bad. So I think, but it, it, like Rob was saying, all of this is totally smoke and mirrors because ultimately, it is the GM who has and the players. Control. It's people sitting at
1: a table doing mm-hmm. something. Um, now, to talk now that we talk about the dungeon a bit, we're going to get into some other adventure design technologies, but we're also going to bring up a cautionary example first because here is another piece of adventure design technology that is incredibly powerful and has been used a lot and is actually not a great thing and that is railroading GM railroading is ultimately another adventure design technology it is forcing the players down a particular path where and there are a couple other things like NPC sock puppets and other classic World of darkness kind of things uh, where the players are primarily audience for what's going on and their choices don't really matter This is really effective as technology. If you are running a short-term game, if you want to convey a certain amount of information, if you want to capture tone, this is a very powerful technology for all of those things. And if you are a good enough GM that you can hide that you're doing it, then everyone can potentially even have fun doing it. But it's a problem. Uh, I think we've probably all been in games at one point or another, which is really just the GM forcing us through the paces and showing what he he or she wants to show that is not so much fun, especially once you're aware of it. And that is an illustration of why, of why the fact that just because something's a technology that can do things in game design doesn't always mean it's an improvement or a good thing or keeps up with the thing you're trying to do.
2: Now, uh, you could say also, though, that, that there are people who, and I've, in fact, I have had discussions with folks who said, uh, <coughs> my group as players uh, trust LGM to. Uh, have a great story plan, and we want to be uh, to interact with his story. And I'm like, well, the story that they... They just want to tell their story and have you basically be, you know... The audience. The, the audience, and they're like, that's what we want. I'm like, in that case, sure. awesome. that's fine, that's cool. Uh, I don't design games to do that, but that's good because you have plenty of people who can create those ad infinitum. Um, I think the problem that people often have is though that they confuse railroading with... Um, uh, sort of a plot-driven type event yep. sequence, which we can talk about in well, a little yeah. bit. Yep. Um, if if you do have choices that are meaningful in the game, you're not being railroaded uh, necessarily. You're just being given constrained options, which can yeah. be a different thing.
3: Can I give you an example of this: remember the like fr- first half life? Yes, basically in, in the start you have a script. Yep. Uh, a video. You basically you are railroaded quite literally. Yes. On this.
1: Well, and, that, and that's actually a good point of, where, of, of the portability of the technology because video games are going to be more railroady than a tabletop game. No question at all. And they have to offset that by giving us visual assets and quality writing and direction. And they've got time enough to do that to offset the other problems. I don't have the kind of budget to give you the experience uh, of a Half-Life. So I have to offer you the assets that come from playing at a table with a person running the game. And those are going to be different. So, But it's a good example, again, the, as Cam notes, when you've got the, part, the, the team of players that wants to be an audience when you're doing a video game, there are places and times when railroading is a totally effective technology. It is a neutral thing, it just, for me and for a lot of people, it does not align with what they're looking for in a game.
2: There is actually another side of the railroad that's very important, and that is the training uh, or getting to know the system parts mm. of things. Many quick starts and many um, first adventures or yep. whatever are super rare already because there's limited choices on purpose because they don't want you to have to worry about that while you're learning how the rules work. So if I have, okay, some goblins attack, and then you say, well, what if we want to talk to the goblins? Well, you don't because we're trying out combat right now. Yeah. So get to talking to goblins later. Right now, just kill some goblins. The problem with that, obviously, is there are some people who don't want to do that all over again for a new game. They've already figured out how games work let's just get to something where I you know right. well and the other problem with that is that sometimes that's how you learn it yes and if that's if you
1: get taught that that's how you do the game yep. then you're like well we're always fighting goblins
2: right because yeah. fighting goblins is what we do so there's a trade off I think yep. but, um, but this is happens in video games too there's that point in some video games where all you're doing is showing how the, your controller works yep. you know, hey now press up alright up for this. this
1: step you have to jump over something Yeah.
2: so here's the thing to jump over you're like why am I jumping doesn't matter just yep, jump just jump we want to make sure you know where that button is, and
1: in 40 hours later in play, the next time you actually have to jump, you'll have to check the instructions anyway
2: because you <laughs> do remember. So, uh, what's next on that list? All right, list? so
1: I think we can now start running through a couple uh, of other ideas that have that have shown up in as technology that you can use in designing a game and things that you can look at. Um, to do we want
2: to do do we wanna sort of have uh, sort of ad hoc questions, or do we want to leave? I'm fine with ad hoc project? questions,
1: but I figure we can run through the list yeah. and then uh, then open the floor
2: you're with to have questions,
0: I yeah. that, have question. Sure. Um, just a, just a, to rewind for just one second. Sure. Uh, distinction between a sandbox yep. and there's many different ways to get to that goal that we all understand is the goal. Like there's, like, there's, there's, a, there's a big evil that has yep. to be conquered. There's the railroad method where Google is just telling you there's one pathway to go and you yep. can't take another path. But then there's we're going to try this, we're going to try that, we're going to succeed, we're going to fail, we're going to find it, and it could be any path. All right. but, we, but we're all settled that yep. the ultimate
1: goal is X. Okay, so this this steps back a little bit to asking the question of what an adventure is. Um, and to be super, super nerdy about this, your adventure is the UX for your game. Um, some of you know what the hell I'm talking about, and some of you, that sounds like nonsense. Um, UX is a term that gets thrown around a lot, especially in web design, and it stands for user experience. Um, when you go to a website, it is the combination of how easy it is to navigate, how nice it looks, how easy it is to find the stuff you're looking for, how well it works for you. All these things make for a good or bad user experience. Mm-hmm. The adventure is your experience with the game. The game has rules, it has things you can do, and if you were just laid out on a in a blank map and could just wander around that would be an expression of the rules the adventure is what actually happens in the game to make it interesting um, there are things out there uh, if anyone is familiar with lady blackbird uh, it is a wonderful wonderful product out there and it is a great example of something that basically puts the adventure first it's got some rules uh, the rules are largely taken from the shadow of yesterday which is a perfectly good game but many more people talk about Lady Blackbird than talk about The Shadow of Yesterday because they're thinking about the adventure. Um, so, this is where we come back to the sandbox. There are somewhat different rules for creating and filling and running a good sandbox. Um, and you can do that, and that's, that's awesome and fun, but you also run the risk of everyone just running around, dinking around for four hours and uh, maybe having a random encounter or two. And that can, that's play, but that is something distinct from an adventure. There's no direction, there's no coherency to it. That's not to say it can't be rewarding, right. that's not to say it can't be fun. I've had a ton of fun just running around, smashing into the world and seeing what happens. But I'm also depending on a lot of things working for that to end up being fun. Um, now, how do you plug an adventure into that? That's where things get a little bit interesting, and we'll talk about that some with some of the technology in this, because we don't want it to be. Well, here's your adventure for tonight. It is a black box. You are going to go in this end, and you're going to come out of <coughs> this end, and there is an adventure in the middle. You want it to be. If the rest of the because the rest of the game is this wander around, interact with the world thing, then that's that's an anomaly. That feels like a departure from what's going on. But How are you going to strike that balance between the world being open, choices being real, and an adventurer actually going somewhere and doing something? That's hard. That is really hard. And And that's why the dungeon is so popular, because the dungeon literally is that black box. It is the black box that you can drop in and it makes sense. Because physically and geographically and in every way it is a black box in the setting. And that makes life so much easier. And a lot of the things that people have done in terms of adventure design have been trying to capture that efficiency without requiring us to go into a dungeon for every goddamn thing we do.
2: Um, I think the classic sandbox that people think about is not the open world that you have in video games now, where we've had a bit of the adventure and now you're free to go explore stuff. This happened, my experience first for that was in Final Fantasy, where I had gone through the story part, and and now there's a part, part where you have a ship. You can go anywhere you like and you can do stuff. And I spent more time doing that than any story stuff, anyway. But with my first exposure to sandbox stuff was back when we had hex maps where each hex had something in it. Yep. And I think uh, Judges Guild, uh, City State of the of the uh, Overlord, and that yep. that sort of stuff is the everyone will refer to that as these classic sandbox type adventures. However, I think the sandbox is as much an illusion as the um, dungeon is in some ways because you don't really have ultimate. Um, freedom is there anything you want you have whatever the GM is kind of like ready yep. to accept and interpret what you do as so you were saying the difference between sandbox and multiple paths to get somewhere I think the multiple paths are what the sandbox represents and I think that the, the idea that there is unlimited and infinite things you can do is just as much uh, uh, sort of a, a dodge as there are multiple ways I can go through this dungeon if I go through this path or this way I can go out and come back in again my friends and I can all die and my new characters can come in so many different options, but ultimately there was just limited stuff. There's an endpoint, right?
1: Yeah, and that, but that's important because that you want to balance it. Because you, uh, we're going to mention sleight of hand a lot because sleight of hand is part of what goes on in these things. If there was complete transparency in all these things, then that would either be a GMless game, which is fun in its own right, but is a different kind of thing, or it gets boring really fast. If you know everything that's coming, then you removed a certain element of, of what makes play. Though to flashback, God, I remember uh, we totally ran Isle of Dread like it was a giant dungeon. Yeah, yep. um, back when I was that age, because that's how I knew how to run things.
2: What's in this case? Oh, there's a uh, yep. a thing with tentacles in this Yes, we'll kill it. Oh,
1: this time. this dinosaur's high on loco we yes. <laughs> and yeah, thirteen year old me was like,
2: okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what, so what's that list of things that we want to Okay, well if you can
1: read my handwriting. Um, can I read your handwriting? I don't know if you can or can't. That's okay. So wow. uh, let's start well, let's start with so I'm gonna I'm gonna get one one trivial technology out of the way that's worth paying some attention to. Actually, I'm gonna step back one one thing from there. Um, here are the three things that adventures need to accomplish. And I'm um, adventures in this case I mean written adventures. Adventure needs to be something that's fun to play. That that we sort of all accept as a given. An adventure is creating a cool and exciting play experience for everyone involved. Most adventurers keep this in mind and do a good a good enough job with this. The next thing it needs to do is give the GM the tools to run that. And a lot of adventures sort of fall down on that. Um, as cool as this dungeon is, if it, the GM has to write another 20 pages of notes and... Photocopy 19 things and can't quite figure out what the hell you mean in this part right here, then however cool your adventure is, if you're making it harder for the GM, then there's a problem with the adventure. The last thing, and this is one that gets overlooked a lot, um, and is especially relevant if the adventure if you're producing adventures for your game, is the adventure showcases what the game should be. When you put out an adventure for a game, if it's your game, you are making an argument that says, Adventures for my game look like this and Once you've reached certain volume you can have one-offs and weird things and and that's all well and good, but when that first adventure comes out that is a position you are taking and uh, This is relevant uh, for D&D actually with 5e gives us a great example of This and actually has given us great examples of this across the across the years in that right now lost mine of Phandelver is an argument for what 5e play is supposed to look like from their perspective. Um, the arc of modules that they came out with when 3e hit the came out is an argument for what it's supposed to look like. Pathfinder completely gets this. Every Pathfinder arc is an argument for what Pathfinder play is supposed to look like. Um, and that is the easiest thing to forget when you start thinking about all the things you can do in an adventure. Um, but it's maybe the most important to remember if it's your game. If it's someone else is getting to hell with it, then you are
2: making your argument for what that game should be like. Uh, and that's a totally acceptable argument to make. But There is something to be said for you being the one, if you're designing a game or you're involved in designing a game, you need to make sure that your team are the ones who create that adventure. Because while it might be fun to get uh, so-and-so named designer who was uh, well-known uh, amongst other gamers as being a great person to write adventures for, give them your, your game and have them write an adventure for you as your first thing uh, I would not necessarily take that as a good um, yep. uh, step because they will make a great adventure for, for, them. for them and you will be like well now we have to go back and fix this to make it work with the system we actually created so you should be the one who demonstrates that the uh, first up um, even if you just do the skeleton and, and want someone to do some writing to make it read right uh, or and because you think you're the worst writer in the world you still have to be the one who does that uh, thing yeah. Um, well, yeah, and this is uh, so one
1: of the things that was the impetus for this uh, Evil Hat has a Patreon project going at the moment uh, where yep we're bringing in uh, bringing in writers and they're drafting their own rule extra rules and adventures and all these things and one of the recurring things I've had to say is people come in and they've got these wonderful ideas for settings and these wonderful ideas for the new rules they're going to do for it And then they put in an adventure which is not showcasing any of these awesome things they just told me. Um, And that hurts. Um, And often it seems like they're doing adventures the way that they feel adventures are supposed to be done. And one of the points of going through this technology and talking about these things is we want to come out the other end and say that there is not one way to do an adventure which is the right way. But there are lots and lots of tools that you can do it with. Um, So use another one box text box text is the bane of many adventures out there but it actually is a really useful technology Uh, when I talk about making the adventure usable by the GM this is actually a kind of wonderful thing it gives the GM oh I can read this and it conveys the information about what's going on it makes it easier for me to engage the players it's awesome and it is when it's any good how often is it any good not often because rather than think of it as something that's trying to help at the table, rather than think of it in terms of how the GM would actually talk at the table, it's <clears throat> crazy purple prose.
2: Yeah. And especially it's prone to the, the writer of the game stepping in and being GM for a bit, yep. and setting up scenes and things and making decisions for characters completely unaware of who at, is playing the game at the time, yeah. or what will eventually play it. So if you say, then uh, the fighter... Swings a sword and says, I will not stand yep. for this. The person in the game is like, what, what? What? I do what? Uh, that kind of thing is... Uh, is,
1: is terrible. But the, the kicker is, and this is something that's going to come up with a bunch of the technologies, is I get frustrated when I see Box Tech that text does not sound like anything I would ever say as a GM. I mean, it's not, I don't say this much to describe a room. I don't go into the details of the curtains and the whatever statuary are in it, and I certainly don't do the, and now I'm going to provide you lots of details to make it clear there's a secret door over here, um, because this is a terrible way to go about doing that. So this is one of those things where box text itself is not bad, but maybe if you write it like you would GM it, um, then it might be a little bit more useful. And that's, a, that's a good just starting example of a technology. You got one you want to grab or... Me? Yeah. I'll, I'll start another one without any real problem.
2: Oh. Uh, I didn't know what hard and soft points are. What, oh, hard and, are, soft, points. Hard hard and soft, soft points. Hard and
1: soft points are something that uh, Alderac uh, slash John Wick did back in the day. And it's uh, pretty fun. Uh, it's actually an answer to your question in a lot of ways. Uh, hard and soft points basically say, okay, Here's an adventure. We need to rescue the queen. And to rescue the queen, we the here are the things we absolutely must do. We absolutely must find out where the queen is, we must get there, we must break into the tower. And so at its bare bones, those those would be the hard points of the adventure design. And those are the things that I, as the designer, would write up in more detail and and write up all the things that can go on and try to make as cool as possible. But then I would say, alright, but the game's probably not going to be just those things. So what is some connective tissue I can put into these things that are optional? What are the soft points in this adventure? What are, okay, an ambush by agents of the bad guy, a, you know, a side quest <coughs> involving some kind of interesting little thing, and in writing these adventures What they basically did Is like Alright here's A two page spread For each hard point And then Half a page Or a quarter page whatever For a whole bunch Of soft points So that you as the GM Had all the information You need for the key stuff And all the tools You needed To spice it up And spread it out And make it more interesting
2: So what you're saying Rob Is that that's what we did For Marvel Heroic
1: Hmm That is not But I think it is Yes
3: What's what What's that? I remember the same technique as, exactly as you described it, is it civil war storyline? Yes. yes
2: all of the Marvel horror events uh, were designed that way which I did not know was called hardened soft points.
1: that is at least where what it was called when I first encountered it. yeah uh,
2: but thats that is a fun way of looking at it because yep. the, the 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 ability of the GM to throw in those soft points, those uh, optional scenes, uh, is part of a pacing mechanic that the GM only only the GM at the table will know just how fast or slow the game is going at that point. Yep. So if everyone's bored with whatever the main storyline is, hey, let's have the uh, uh, the mercenary team show up and and upstage us and make it us look bad, and then we can have that uh, scene play out. Um, so I, I think one thing I want to sort of go over is the idea of, of set pieces. Sure. Uh, set pieces is a thing that I first learned really from feng shui back in the 90s because it was the first time I'd ever sort of thought of the idea of it playing out like uh, a movie script mm-hmm. um, where you have, say, two or three kinds of places or things or images in your mind about what you want to have happen. And they don't have to happen in any particular order, but you want to have a battle at a warehouse, you want to have a showdown on a catwalk, and you want to have uh, a race... On a a train! Yeah, with a train. Those things are going to have to happen, and you can write them up, and you can have them presented in whatever ways with stats and things, but you don't know where they're going to happen. Uh, And then the rest of it kind of is is off the cuff.
1: Now, and certain games work better for that. Feng Shui Mm -hmm. is fantastic for exactly that. Um, what he's describing is literally the, the adventure design model that, that Robin Law has put forward in Feng Shui which is pick three awesome fight scenes and then come up with some excuses to tie them together yeah really thin excuses too sometimes which is fine because this is a game of cinematic high kung fu action and everyone's pretty much on board with that kind of cinematic reasoning yeah that would be a harder sell in a game of Pathfinder or however
2: you know. uh, I think well it's hard yeah. sell for, for Pathfinder as a published thing yep but um, I would do this all the time when I was running D&D back in the uh, thousands. And in fact, uh, Clark is nodding his head. Clark actually at one point uh, revealed to me that he had this idea of, of a thing. Uh, was it the dragon coming out of the, the ground in that one uh, real-time based thing? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yes. Uh, at some point, you had really wanted to have this He had this image in his mind of this thing happening. And I don't think you knew when it was going to happen or when or how, but a lot of the time, we were aiming at that without us n- knowing it. Uh, and so, the idea that we have, like you know, I really want to have this one sort of scene come up, is best when you are uh, doing it, riffing off it in your home game. It's hard to publish that in a game which yes. relies on the pacing of an adventure. Yep. Um,
1: and that's and that is definitely a this is this is more of a technique for applying to your home game than it is to a uh, publish adventure. Now, can you apply this to a published adventure? Yes, you totally can. Um, published event, you can publish really awesome scenes. You can say. Here is an awesome fight scene on a boat, and here are some notes on changing the adversaries up a little bit. And here are all the awesome things that can happen on the boat that make the fight kind of interesting. Um, mechanically, you could say here are potential. If you're doing Fate, you could say here are potential aspects. If you're doing uh, Power Powered by the Apocalypse, you could say here are some custom moves for these things. Yep. If you're doing D anD D, you can you can give some mechanical effects. The language doesn't really matter, but what you can do is say here's how a boat fight is awesome.
4: Um, Steve Jackson Games actually has that on their wish list they've had it for years
3: and yep. they want people to do just encounters yep. that they, they were published. and well, uh, nobody steps up because it seems really hard as part yep. of the
2: Kickstarter for Feng 2 what we did is we, we announced that GM's green was one of the stretch goals we that planned out I hate GM's greens and, and Rob knows this yes we, you, you,
1: if you come to our next panel we yes. will be fighting over that but I, I, what I do like
2: about this is that there's a booklet that's going to be in there which is just a whole bunch of fight scenes Uh, as Rob was saying a fight on a boat a fight in a temple a thing and that is great because even if you're just like stuck for one session one night you're like what am I going to do I did this when I ran a French free game I said I want to do oh there's a fight in a a restaurant by by the docks you know by the wharf and it was all laid out for me here are some here are some cool things that can happen someone can be uh thrown onto the, the grill and just, ah, ah, this you know but that is enough stuff to get you going and that's exactly. what is the tools that we're right. talking
1: about with the e qualif- yeah, yes i was actually about is, to get to that 4E yeah, was, was actually almost entirely built around this model mm-hmm. um, uh, for yeah. all of its faults 4E did really good fight scenes um, and with, it was in fact the, that Feng Shui model of i'm just going to tie together three fights worked fantastically for me for 4E <laughs> because the connective tissue being weak was in alignment with what was weak about the game. But the fight scenes were awesome and that's wh- how it managed to play out. Um, and the Dungeon Delve books are basically that. Um, yeah. So that is, a, that is another handy technology. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll pick another one. Um, let's talk about fronts. Uh, fronts are a... There's something from uh, the Powered by the Apocalypse games, Apocalypse World, Dungeon World, things like that. Interestingly, of all things, they seem very daunting to someone coming into the game, because in, what you do with a front is you go, all right, who's a bad guy? And, all right, the, the Order of the Arcane Eye, all right, that is a front. What are they doing? All right, here are, the, here are the ways the Order of the Arcane Eye are going to be making their presence known in the setting. Here are the threats that are going to come from that, and this is going to sort of evolve over the course of things. This seems very daunting until you realize that it's ultimately just a note-keeping uh, technique. Um, it is just a way to write down particular things and ask yourself specific questions about what's afoot and who's doing what in a given time and not losing track of it.
2: It is a great example of what I was saying earlier about GM uh, practices being codified into games. Yep. Because a lot of people, even back in, in D&D, yeah. um, something like this always has, has been in place. Um, if you ever played Temple of Elemental Evil, Uh, you knew that there were the four different temples uh, well, parts of the earth, air, fire, water, and they had their own motivations and things. It wasn't necessarily always well presented, but some of the GMs I know who've run that essentially made those as fronts, even back in the 80s and 90s, because they knew that the Temple of Water was really upset with the Temple of Fire, the Temple of uh, whatever was trying to do this and those are the things you would write down maybe as your notes as a GM, but Fronts kind of make it a thing.
1: 5th edition actually has something, the, the factions yep. that they rolled out for the front, yes. but that actually specifically ties the player characters into what the front Yes, and yeah. that is actually one of the things I'm really looking to so forward I to was, seeing evolve. We were just talking yeah. yesterday, they yeah. specifically did that in the second half of the Mega Adventure Rise of the TMI. Yes, yep just came Yep all the factions and you have scorecards and all this stuff about how they interact and what they do in the big
2: final battle. So yeah, you know. yeah, but that's a little different though also from what I think the first purpose of Front Squads was... was uh, to, to drive things. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. and this and this is, again, once again, this is a technique
1: that comes back to the sandbox question. This is, all right, it is not always possible, especially when you've got something that's big and very sophisticated, it is not always possible to just write an adventure that's got all these parts. If I If I create four factions... I could write an adventure where, at each step along the way, one faction does something and another faction does something, and it could all be very constrained, but that would not feel very organic. That would be... The first couple of scenes and stuff would probably be just awesome, but eventually something would slip and something would be off the rails and the logic of the adventure would no longer be in sync with the logic of what's happening in the play. Whereas if I decide to say, all right, these are the, the slave lords, to use one of the classics from D&D. This is their agenda These are their resources And these are the kinds of things that they would do Just like we were talking about in a fight scene These are the kinds of things that would make this fight scene awesome Someone getting thrown off the boat The Slave Lords, they might take someone's family prisoner They, they might empty out a town and loot it you, you list the sort of things that they can do And that effectively what you're doing is loading the GM
2: mm-hmm.
1: You're saying to the GM Here's a bunch of stuff for you to tap into when it works for you in your game.
2: And one way to make this work with sandboxes really effectively is when the players do X, trigger this. Yep. So the first time, it doesn't matter when, the first time the players go into a tavern or an inn, anywhere on my sandbox map, they will meet this small sort of uh, bad guy adventuring party for the first time. And my bad guy adventuring party is my front. It could be, you know, the, yep. the Brothers of the Dark Sword or whatever thing you want. Uh, but you'll meet some, the, the first time they go anywhere that's a tavern. And it doesn't matter where you have that city, but you can have cities set up as, like, Harrison some basic city notes, but you don't put any adventure material in there because you're front of the adventure material. Yeah.
1: Now, some people are going to be uncomfortable with this because this is uh, this is textbook illusionism. Yeah. This is, if I've got a villain and he's just going to show up in the next tavern you show up, you come to, no matter what tavern it is, for some people that's just not comfortable. That's fine. If you want to pay attention to that level of detail, then you can get more granular. You can say, here are the kinds of taverns that this particular guy is going to be in, and you can narrow it down according to your own logic. What I was going to say, it doesn't have to be, like, logically a trigger. It
0: doesn't have to be, like, if X, then Y. It can easily be just, you know, you've got these different actions or these yep. fronts where events can occur and it's like, okay, well the players are focused here and that means something happened
1: here to, yep. you, to well, remind the players that there is conflict occurring. Absolutely. And that's, there, there's a, actually a bit in the world system that is sort of communicate, give, give signals to those things. But that said, there is a lot of value in if X, X, then Y. Having specific triggers are, they're useful to the GM because they keep you moving. If you have it in your own notes that when this happens, then this will happen, then you don't that that is a that pushes you to keep things going. I otherwise run into the problem of well, I've got this thing and it's out there in my notes somewhere, and oh, six sessions later, I remember that that thing existed. Maybe I should do something with it. If I put a trigger in, and that's part of what's going on, then it's going to stay in play, um, and that's very potent. But the uh, the this ties into another adventure design thing, which is plot points. Um, this is something that the Savage World system came up with um, and has done a wonderful job with. Where they basically say, here's the map. And in classic sort of sense of things, there are numbers on the map, and there are things that happen on each of those numbers. You can encounter them in any order, and the plot, such as it is, is totally spread out among these things for you to encounter at whatever pace or integration you want to deal with. So, if you're uncomfortable with saying that this event that these mercenaries are in the next tavern you guys come to, you do a plot point sort of thing and say, alright, these, these mercenaries are in, the, in a tavern in this city over here. And when the time comes that the players get over there, that's when they're going to encounter it. You get a little bit less of a drive towards an arc. The, you might get an arc once the play gets going. If you start saying, hey, there's a threat to the world and the players start being aware of it and they start going places in response to that. Then you might get a little more direction. But if they don't, it's still all out there.
3: Um, I remember something like this in, te- in Techno. Remember, I talked uh, earlier about uh, Jim Carrey's game. Yep. He had basically a thing that whenever you go somewhere, like, and then uh, somewhere, somewhere else, these like, three points will form a clot in mm-hmm. so yep. whatever you do. Because there are some limited amount of things you may do. And if your them basically it links to each other, and then it becomes a plot.
1: Exactly. And that's the that, that point you start talking about building webs, which we'll, we'll get to in a second, because that's another uh, another valuable technique. Plot point seems, sounds a lot like how Skyrim... Actually, Skyrim is a fantastic that. example of it. Skyrim is effectively designed along a plot point sort of lines. I was going to say in the flagship Savage Worlds plot point setting, which
0: was
4: Evernight.
1: See, for me, I would say 50 Fathoms. Yeah.
4: Right. Well, it wasn't Evernight first, though? I... I think it was. Yeah, but they. Yeah. they, they 50 Fathoms is better. Yeah, 50 they Fathoms is the one I point to. Every night yep. got it wrong. Yep. Yeah. Right. Evernight did get it wrong. That's what yep. I was going to say. It was yep. very railroaded. Yep. You had no choice about certain scenes were going to happen. the outcome. <laughs> yes. See, defining what has to happen and leaving the outcome open to good play yep. is very different Exactly.
1: That. Not, just that's very frustrating. Yep. Yeah, and 50 Fathoms is totally the one I would point anyone at if they want to see plot points done very uh, well.
2: So I want to. Uh, briefly pimp stuff that I've done before the, the, the thing I'm most uh, happy with in terms of adventure design was a huge adventure for Dragonlance it was called Price of Courage and the way this was put together was there was an opening chapter where some things happened to trigger things off there was a closing chapter where there was the final battle with the big you know white dragon that was the main antagonist and the middle five chapters were playable in any order uh, I had factions that you joined up with um, and they did things behind the scenes and we were involved in it and you got faction points and so on. Uh, the weirdest thing about seeing all the stuff that for at, for example, is like wow, that looks really familiar, but uh, never mind, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, th- along with that there, there was a sort of a plot point element where they would the players could choose to take care of things in the order they wanted to and why they were doing it. Another running antagonist uh, who was Gilthinus, uh, uh, was going along and trying to do the same thing as they were but the GM had a pre-established se- sequence of events where where, where Gilfinance was going to go based on a kind of a card reading kind of thing which is a, a very classic Tracy Hickman uh, technique where I will determine where everything is by uh, doing a fortune telling session but the idea was that if you were at the same chapter as uh, as Gilfinance was a thing would happen yep. you'd meet him if you were there after he'd been there the thing that you were looking for was already gone and if you went there before he got there, you could take it before he did. So I wanted to figure that way out, and that was a, uh, a, a hybrid of many of these ideas of trying to get that approach of um, somewhat of a sandbox, but we have to have plot points in it because you have to write them up. Yep. But you know, it was uh, it was so that you could have a, a different playthrough every time, yep. right? To think of what Skyrim is good because if you go to some things in Skyrim first, sometimes you get the change. Yeah.
1: sometimes you don't. And, that, and that's Here's the critical thing This is something Really important All of these things That we're talking about In terms of plot points And, and, and things floating around You'll notice That they all Are decoupled There is a, An instinct the first time You start writing an adventure Where you want it To be really flexible Where you start Trying to branch it
2: Mm-hmm
1: which would be like the classic choose-your-own-adventure model. All right, we're going to start with them in the tavern, and the guy's going to come. All right, and if they accept the job, then this will happen. And if they don't accept the job, then this will happen. And if if something else, then this will happen. All right, and then from this, then this and this and this and this. And maybe you try to pull them all back together, and you start building this incredible And it's terrible. Never do that. (laughs) Because you'll make yourself crazy. You can do that in a very, very limited (laughs) scope. But beyond a certain threshold, it just gets exponentially more and more complicated and more and more cumbersome and more and more impossible. Whereas if I just say, yep, there are five bad guys running around with five pieces of a magic item and they're each doing something. Yep, And I as a GM know this, and I can sort of have those float around. Players go after them in whatever order. Players ignore the problem. Players do whatever they want. I've got small pieces which I can comprehend and manipulate. Um, and Whereas, if I tried to build a branching model to handle that, I would kill myself. Yeah.
2: Now, I think what people do that, the reason why they do that, is that they are applying dungeon tech yep. to story tech. Mm-hmm. And it, sometimes it works, yep. right? Other times it is a, a, a dismal failure because you forget that in the dungeon you really only can go left and right on a yep. certain corridor. But in the tavern example, right. do we. I mean. No, right. we beat, we beat the guy up, yeah. take his stuff, and discover that he's got a map. And, yeah. that, and we
1: and we decide to start working for the guy who's against him because that's a, <coughs> because that's what you do. And I've occasionally seen people try to write uh, flowcharts like dungeons. And the first time you see that, it seems so clever. It seems like such a wonderful idea. It seems like it's translating this. No.
2: Well, and yeah. it was advice from the designers at, at one point in, yep. in, in history too, right? Yep. It was one of those things where, if you like doing dungeons, just like do your whole social type scenario as storyline a dungeon. As a dungeon, okay, sounds great. Then it always until inside. you actually
1: try it, and then it crashes and burns magnificently. Or
2: a clever game master makes it work somehow, and then everyone yep. thinks it's a great time. And then the game master says, "I hated that eventually. It was
1: oh god, it was, it was so terrible. terrible." How do you guys feel
3: about the island?
4: Tech?
1: You Tell me what you mean by it because I don't know that name. Okay,
4: it was in Unframed, the okay. book that came out recently. Yep. Um, it's like you write on on index cards what could happen if something is triggered. Um, so it's kind of like what you're talking right. about, where like if you go into a tavern, there's the bad guy there. Yep. Um, and you can kind of edit it as you go along because it's on index cards. Having
1: having an array of consequences effectively. Yeah. Uh, that things like that are great technique, and this is this is actually an important uh, distinction. There are a lot of techniques for running a good adventure, which that totally falls into the category of, mm-hmm. which are not going to help you a lot in creating an adventure. Um, and especially if you want to write an adventure. And right now we're sort of straddling a lot because some of this advice is applicable if you want to write adventures for other people. And we're skewing that way a little bit. But we also recognize that running adventures is, is, and creating them at your own table is equally important.
2: There is a third element to this, I think, and that is being able to, to, to analyze or criticize an adventure that's published for yourself. Yes. If you can recognize some of these techniques and adventures that you're reading, you can say, "Oh, I see what they're doing here. It's a thing that Rob mentioned," and then we can, you know, send money this way. No, exactly. Just kidding. No, but (laughs) I think that's that's important, right? Well, it becomes
1: super important because one of the things you can do is you can crack up an adventure and go, and you'll usually see this, especially in dungeons. You're like, "All right, this dungeon has like three really cool set pieces." There's very clearly this fight where you get dumped in the middle of the, the pile of waste and the shambling mounds come up, and, oh, that's going to be awesome. And and over here there's the trap with the spinning blades that you've got to fight the troll while this is going on, and it's getting chopped to pieces, and the pieces are fighting you. And, oh, that's awesome. And you've got those three things, and then, like, okay, then we had to fill 20 other rooms.
2: Yeah, <laughs> This room has a goblin in it, trying to get um, out of the cage. Uh, so the governor, yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: And, I, mean, and, this is, and I'll, I will give you my personal bias in this, in that if that's the case, then don't write those other rooms. If you've got five cool things to put in a dungeon, then make it a five-room dungeon. Yeah, um, Your players will thank you, and frankly, it's...
0: That's, hmm? that's a very interesting... Yeah. Thing to say, because because uh, that that touches on what dungeons were. Yes, it does. What they are now. Yes, they are and, and very. And that also different. dovetails into what you were talking about in uh, treating plot lines like dungeons. Yep. big because, because dungeons as they were, and treating plot lines as dungeons, have a similar problem. Mm-hmm. That if you're trying to make that old school style of dungeon, you have to reconcile yourself to the fact that the players aren't going to see a lot of it. Yeah. Yep.
2: Um, they will not see, for example, the seventeen secret doors that you have put there with right. rooms behind them that has plus five holy adventures in them. Which I would see a lot in the, a lot of older dungeons. There were the ones there was always
1: there was always the one secret place that had the huge cache of
2: treasure. The worst part, though, as a DM, I would feel that I, I'm cheating my players if they don't find it. Right. right. So, despite the fact that it was probably not meant to be found, it was. Oh like no! It's game. totally
1: meant to be found. It's meant to be found by the player who buys the freaking module. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No. I wish I <laughs> was joking. Like, <laughs> I, hey, run this first. I, I need to anecdote that because
0: <laughs> I got to tell you when it, it, when it, when it the, the thing that rarely happens.
1: Yep.
0: When it happens it's priceless. It's priceless. Oh. It's amazing when when totally randomly, and this happened. Yep. I think that there's a secret door in this room. All right, I'm gonna cast the secret doors. That's not where the secret door is. All right, I have another five rounds left on this. Let's check this hallway. Yeah.
1: There, oh, and that, and that's the nice that's thing about. And that's that's one of the rubs, and this is the balancing act you're going to have. Um, I, I when I say the five room dungeon, I am being slightly flipped because that is, uh, while that is true for some style of games, that's not going to be true for every game. Um, if you are also interested in the resource management end of things and some of the exploration and emergent property element of things, then you need to have something other than all cool stuff all
2: the time. Yeah, if your players love the grind, they're not going to like a five-room dungeon. They're going to find out that you... You know, you've done the uh, uh, Indiana Jones line across the thing between the parts of the dungeon map. It's railroaded. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't even know if it's even that. it's just it's not enough stuff for them to feel as if they're achieving it, right? Um, I think a good example, though, is 4E decided that at one point the dungeon map was too many rooms of things. But they didn't want to remove the rooms, so they said, let's group these nine rooms as an adventure area. And these four are... And I thought that was good. Well, and conveniently,
1: this translates into another particular piece of adventure technology. What is it? This Uh is the personality-driven dungeon. Um, And Owen Owen Casey Steffens is fantastic at these. uh, And he's released a number of free ones back in 3E, and he, he writes for Pathfinder and stuff these days. And what this is, is generally a dungeon, often a little bit smaller than a classic dungeon where the centerpiece is the villain this villain this, this dungeon is the lair of Bob and the focus of the text is not about the key to map and the various rooms and whatnot, but it's about Bob and what his motives are what he's doing what his resources are and how he's moving those things about so the focus is on making the dungeon a dynamic mm-hmm. sort of thing and that I always find feels more reasonable because let's take this hotel as an example Um, if God knows they're playing with the power tools and we're having a hard time missing that, if some group of crazy, heavily armed crazy people has busted in four doors down that way and is blowing stuff up and killing things, we're going to start responding. Even if that response is to panic and run away. Um, This dynamic dungeon approach removes that consistent isolation from the previous dungeons. And this is, I think, something that is rewarding for both old and new school players. Because for a new school player, this feels more organic and more alive. But for an old school player, yeah, you're losing the isolation, but it still is respecting the resource management and the risk and the planning and the dynamic responsive world component of adventure design.
2: I also think that is also a codified DM practice too, Uh, Some people would take something like Search the Unknown and they would stock up the rooms with things and have but they would find a, a villain or a monster in it that they really liked and they would find a way to have that be uh, more uh, I think Temple of Elemental is my, I keep coming back to that adventure as being interesting because it tried a lot of things and in this case it was very personality driven but it just wasn't written up that way very well so if you were going to adventure in it, the, the savvy DM would be the kind of person who says I know what's happening here I know that if you make noise down here they will hear it down here because yeah. I've got a tunnel but it wasn't always written up I mean, the very well, the but, this the is an,
1: but this is an illustration of that point about adventures are making a case of what your game is like, and right. not just in terms of the thematics and the monsters, but how it's run. Mm-hmm. The fact that it is—it is actually a great tragedy that a lot of the great modules you have to fight to the fight through this outer crust to understand what's going on, yeah. and if you get through it, they get really exciting. I think a lot of that is also driven by Guy writing style. He assumed <laughs> that it was him. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And, and all players
2: were yep. players. And you would notice the <laughs> change when you went to like a, a Zeb Cook adventure or yep. somebody else. Because some of them were actually copy Gygax two and not yep. do it, and others were like screw it. That's why I think that there's a, a, a interesting thing when you see the shift between that style and something that Tracy Hickman would start doing, where he was throwing more story elements, and narrative, and things in there. But he didn't really change the dungeon. He didn't change the keyed map. He didn't change any of that stuff. Right. But he did change the amount of box text you had to read out yes and so in the event it didn't quite uh, fix it
1: well but it it, but it has the interesting that's all right but you
2: can finish finish
1: the statement well you get the interesting upshot that there are few adventures more interesting than the ones where I can actually tell you what goes on in it um and if you think about a lot of dungeons they don't necessarily have a story that you can say happens or the story that's supposed to happen is not the one that is reflected in the dungeon um one of the, the Beyond the Crystal Caves, which I wanted there was an old there was an old D module that was, you know, this garden inside a crystal dome and it's full of magical creatures. And it's full of really interesting stuff. But to this day I only remember so much about it because except for the green man getting us drunk, it didn't <laughs> go
3: anywhere. Yeah. Well,
4: I, I think going going a, a really what I, what I thought was a really good example of a personality driven dungeon, as we saw in the Lost Minds of Fandelver. Yep. Um, is in the Manor House where you've yes. got this key villain, Glassstaff, and it's very explicit. His main thing, he's, he's the boss, but all he wants to do is run away. Yep. right? And and they even within the story give you a, well, this obviously is the way he's going to go yeah. in order to get away. Yep. So now you have action. But really, the interesting monster there is the yep.
1: and
4: And the way you can use that to manipulate and freak your players out so you have this really weird encounter that just happens when no one expects it, yep. and then finally you get to the boss who doesn't want to fight you; he just wants to run away. Yep. Um, and when my players played through that, it was it was a very it was very interesting how choices impacted yep. his ability to do that and the consequences associated with it. And there were things that they had not known, but because the dungeon had personality, yep. it became a, it became a story that everyone remembers. As opposed to a collection of monsters they simply killed
1: and looted. Exactly. That is actually one of the greatest strengths about the Phandelver Adventure, for anyone who's looked at it, is that the dungeons there are about half the normal size. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They do a good job there. They they actually probably strike about the, uh, the right balance of, here are a few really key pieces, and then here's enough space around them to make them matter. Um, so... That adventure, I think, honest to God, there are like seven dungeons over the course of it. It's, it's really um, well but each together. one is reasonably easily yeah. put through. I, I'm kind of seeing the same thing. I've, I just finished running uh, Port of the Dragon Queen yep. mm-hmm. uh, for my local encounters group, and like in the la- like the last episode, there's there's a couple of different like here's the big set pieces, here's a bunch of other stuff that you can go encounter if you want to, yep. um, like.
4: There's treasure in here if you want to fight these others. Yep. Great. Some players
1: will want to do that. My table is like, <laughs> no. <laughs> we're going to go and deal with other things that we find more important. And I thought that was really, really cool. It is. Now, now, here's another interesting thing, and Fandelver's yeah, another... Minutes. Okay, is a good example of it. Um, they've taken a page from World of Warcraft. Fandelver, if you read the central... T- it, it is a spoken hub model. Mm-hmm. There's a town in the middle and you go out from it to various points to adventure and while that's a little cheesy it's actually super functional um, and while the write-ups of some of the NPCs really feel like they should have glowing gold question marks over their head <laughs> um, that's not so bad uh, because the fact that every plot hook and adventure in Fandelver is tied back to an NPC is good design yeah. It means that there are more interesting NPCs who you will interact with in that town than in almost any classic adventure where all of the adventures come from the board or the one mysterious guy. No. A bunch of people, they all want things, and the fact that each NPC wants different things and is tied into the factions means that the adventures are cool, but they're also making your home base more interesting.
0: we got like just a couple of minutes yep. left. Did yep. you talk about uh, the technology of the random encounter Yes!
2: Oh, yes. I random we,
1: tables are the last do we, thing. Do we
2: have different views on this? Because I hate wondering what's the tables... And I hate deep.
1: them as they're done, but I don't hate the technology. Okay,
2: cool. You stop it.
1: Okay, see. so the biggest problem with random encounters, as far as I'm concerned, this is just total opinion, is that too often they are written at a complete disconnect with the rest of the adventure. If there is just this random set of, of Schrodinger's monsters that may or may not spawn into existence, then... It, it doesn't make anything better. It doesn't make anything feel better. It's a pain in the butt. If the, ta- the table is tied into the adventure so that the, the owlbears on this encounter table are actually owlbears from over here, so if you've already killed them over here and you roll them up over here and they don't, then they don't show up. Or if you do kill them over here, you eventually find the owlbear lair and it's empty. I like that a lot more. You can also do things like use the wandering encounters to tell stories. Uh, a technique i like very much if you're creating these is to make a wandering monster table that is bigger than the die you're going to be rolling. You can actually put an in build an entire adventure out of a, out of an encounter table by basically saying, "All right, i'm going to be rolling d6 for random encounters. I'm going to put 10 things on this list. And every time one is encountered, i'm going to cross it out. And the list then bumps up responsibly. And i put the villain in slot the, the arch villain in slot 9 or 10.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You could you could fake an entire adventure that way And it would have a very natural progression Towards the arch-villain This is this, and, and Wandering Monsters are just one example Random tables are incredibly powerful Incredibly powerful they, That could be a whole seminar in its own right uh, On the number of things that could be done with them You, They're wonderful, use them Feel free to take advantage of them They give GMs all sorts of seeds And all sorts of inspiration And if the GM doesn't use them It's very rarely a problem
2: Two things I would follow up with One is I would take the numbers off the the tables and I'll use them as your optional soft points. Sure, um, especially if they've been designed, like Rob says, to fit into the setting, the scenario, and so on. Bring one in when you like to. Don't roll the dice randomly, because if you roll, I've often seen. Like, no, that's not clear. right.
1: Well, because the purpose of the random monster table historically is to keep you from resting. Right, and if that's the concern, fine, use it for pressure for that. But otherwise, Cam is Cam is very much on the mark. Use it as a pacing tool. Things are slow. We need to do it. This is the. D and D equivalent of the guy coming in through the door with a machine gun yep. blazing. Use use one of these encounters. Second thing
2: that I want I want to end on is yep. the fact that one of my favorite uh, wandering monster tables was the random wandering damage table, which was in I think it was in uh, Castle Greyhawk the the, the joke yep. uh, thing because that uh, was basically uh, you rolled okay roll for rent for wandering damage you rolled okay there's what and there's like sixty six damage to you it just happened there was no monster there was nothing you just died. The though
1: weirdly that would totally work with the five E-layers <laughs> yeah since I did
2: last comment on that like, like the, the merge does too it seems like the,
0: the thing that happened with uh, the uh, watering monsters that killed them was they became a, uh, a a resource source? Like yep. you farm the longer, longer monsters. Like for them to work, you have to you have to get the reward out of element out of it. Like they're
1: just well, bad. but if you do if you remove it entirely, then they just feel punitive. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's why if you tie them into the setting, then you get that organically. Well, thank you everyone. Yeah, I, I yeah. hope we got yeah. to everyone's questions. That uh, we yammered more than I expected.